politics is about fallen human beings with transcendent longings working out how we're going to do life together. And in that regard, uh, we have a great deal to glean from what Scripture is saying. It is appropriate that Christian citizens should speak about their knowledge of the way that God has made the world for its flourishing and seek to invite others to recognize that as well. Welcome to Help Me Teach the Bible. I'm Nancy Guthrie. Help Me Teach the Bible is a production of the Gospel Coalition, sponsored by Crossway, a not-for-profit publisher of the ESV Bible, Christian Books and Tracks. Learn more at crossway.org. I'm in a suburb of Washington, D.C. today with my friend, Jennifer Marshall. Jennifer, thank you for being willing to help us teach the Bible. I'm delighted to be with you, Nancy. Thank you. Jennifer is currently a visiting lecturer in applied theology at Reformed Theological Seminary in Washington, D.C., and there she's helping them build the Institute of Theology and Public Life. Jennifer has extensive experience in public policy But what's wonderful is she also has a deep love for God's word. (laughs) Uh, She's done plenty of education in God's word, and now she's giving it out, teaching specifically how to apply God's word and understand God's word in such a way that applies to matters of politics and public policy, Uh, living in this 24-7 cable news era. Perhaps we are forced more than ever before to always be thinking about these things and they are raised to such a level of importance. And in recent days, uh, such a sense, maybe it's also the emergence of social media. Everybody has an opinion. Everybody's constantly outraged about some kind of issue. And these are the people who walk into our Sunday school class or women's Bible study Uh, These are the college students in our college ministries, and they really need to know how to think about these issues in the world through the lens of the scriptures. So uh, I'm hopeful, and Jennifer is hopeful, that we'll be able to hand off some tools for Bible teachers who really want to do that. But let's begin, Jennifer. Just tell me a little bit first about your background uh, in in the Bible. Mm -hmm. When do you remember the Bible first being important to you, and how did that develop in your life? Well, I had the wonderful blessing of growing up in a Christian home. It was very faithful in forming us to think in a biblical way. Um, my parents were teaching us the Westminster Shorter Catechism were they really as children. In your home? Yeah, in our home and in our church was a, a wonderful part of life. And you know, I wondered why it was written in such old-fashioned language sometimes. And <laughs> my dad suggested that I work on paraphrasing some of the things, and that was a good lesson to me that 
you know, when we don't understand things, when it's not as clear, work harder at understanding and articulating it in ways that are are more, what we're more accustomed to and find that language. Uh, It doesn't make it out of date. It doesn't make the truth out of date. makes us work harder at Mm -hmm. thinking through how to express it uh, in ways that can be heard today. So that uh, that was a wonderful thing. And um, I, I had the privilege to attend some very excellent Christian schools in Wheaton, Illinois, and then went to the famous college in Wheaton, yeah. Illinois, and had I a mean, great experience there. Yeah, if you've never been to Wheaton, that's like uh, Mecca for Christians <laughs> or something, isn't it? I always find, uh, I've I've spent some time in Wheaton, been there a couple times for a week-long stretch. I'd be staying in a hotel, and every morning I would go out for breakfast somewhere, and I found it so fascinating that wherever I went in Wheaton for breakfast, there was a Bible study group there <laughs> in the restaurant a group of women, more often a group of men. And I would often try to sit there and observe it, trying to put myself in the shoes of an unbeliever who had no church family, maybe a business traveler, who had no sense of the Bible. And what I found, it it was so attractive. Mm -hmm. I thought to myself, that in itself, seeing the fellowship of people around God's word, hearing men talk about meaningful things, but also sharing their lives together and just so happy to see each other. Mm -hmm. It was so attractive. So I imagine there was a lot about growing up in Wheaton in that way that was wonderful. Um, Probably sometimes a a culture that is so thoroughly Christian can present its challenges too to really make that faith your own. I had a wonderful experience growing up in Wheaton and uh, going to Wheaton College. The church that I grew up in had a number of Wheaton College professors, which made for incredibly rich uh, Sunday school teaching and preaching at times and rich music. And so the, the understanding of a congregation as a place that truly forms you in the living and understanding of God's Word was a very truly rich uh, experience for me as a young person. And that culture of growing up where it's normal to run into a Bible study at the local diner is just something that I I suppose leaving Wheaton has been the process of learning that one can't take that for granted. (laughs) And, And so that's important no matter what background we're coming from is recognizing the things we didn't even notice. Uh, as a part of that and being able to talk across uh, differences of background, no matter where that's coming from. After Wheaton, what did you do? At Wheaton, I was a French major and planning to teach. And for that, I needed to go abroad and study in France. And I did that at the Sorbonne between my junior and senior year. Are you still fluent in French? I'm conversational, let's put it. (laughs) Some rustiness (laughs) has set in over the years. Um, But I did my uh, student teaching at the Black Forest Academy, which had me in Europe for about five months. And so at the end of that time during my college experience, I was thinking, um, you know, something's quite different in Europe and uh, a less... Uh, less vibrant Christianity in the in, in everyday life, and I, I came back to the United States wondering, is America headed towards that, and who's thinking about our culture, and who's doing anything about that? So that put me on a process of trying to uh, find out who was writing books, what was going on. At that time, I really um, did not know about the whole world of public policy that I've now worked in for nearly 25 years, but I found out about it through an internship in Washington, D.C., and loved what I learned. I was at the time working in education policy, was hired uh, to work in that, and have since 
since then expanded into sort of family policy, religious liberty, and domestic policy like health care and welfare. Uh, so it has been an unfolding process, but one that uh, I've, I've loved to, to see God's hand leading and applying things that I've been grounded in earlier. And along the way, you've gotten more education. I have. Yeah, tell us about that. So I, I uh, did a degree in uh, what was called statecraft and world politics, kind of an international relations degree, and then went back several years later to study uh, theology at RTS DC, the Reformed Theological Seminary here in Washington DC, and pursued a Master's of Art in Religion there. And I am currently working on my PhD at Catholic University of America here in Washington DC. All right. So first of all, you're working on public policy. What gave you the sense that you needed a deeper grounding in theology to do that work? I wanted to be able to think more deeply about the realities that are influencing our daily lives. And so God has made the world for its flourishing. How do we think about that? How do we articulate it? And how do we do that in an increasingly pluralistic age where there is such diversity of uh, perspective? Um, we're not running into Bible studies at every diner across the country. <laughs> how, how do we talk um, with uh, people who are coming from very different backgrounds and perspectives about these things that matter for our everyday lives? So give me an example or two of things you learned in classes that helped you. Because I think... Well, we know that some people think of seminary as only preparing pastors for preaching and the ministry. And you you and I both know as people who I'm a seminary student and you are teaching in a seminary and you're continuing education. You and I both know there's lots of women in seminary who are not there to be pastors. And so uh, give us some examples of some things you learned that you could have only learned Mm -hmm. really in a good, solid seminary that have helped you in your public policy work. So seminary opened up some doctrines and and broadened my and deepened my understanding of them that had been taught for some time and very clear, I think, to, to anyone who's spending time in scripture and theology um, that did have some relation directly to public policy. Th- those are things like the, the goodness of creation, to really mm-hmm. deeply reflect on that and that our callings are worthwhile, that serve the good of our neighbor. Um, the The uh, profundity of the idea of common grace, you know, and how God is is working in this world through that. Those were things that had, um, you know, we can see some roots to public policy through those. In addition, seminary gives us the opportunity to very systematically investigate scripture in an intensive way that it's rare to be able to have that opportunity elsewhere in life. And therefore, it's able to illumine for us big ideas that are everywhere, but because they're everywhere, it's difficult to get your arms around them. So I think about the phrase, in Christ. In Christ, we sing in so many songs, in so many hymns. We say it a lot. It's preached a lot. And what does that really mean? There is so much in that, from Adam to second Adam 
Christ and, and his representation of us and everything he has accomplished in redemption being applied to us. And therefore, we begin to understand the whole of Scripture, the whole of redemptive history, uh, as deeply and newly true in our lives. When, when that light goes on, I, I, that was breathtaking to me. And it changes the way that we approach Scripture. We're not, we're not just seeing then moral examples to try to do better and be like this good person, be like Christ because of our own efforts. We are, the Holy Spirit is working in us to transform us as we read Scripture because we are united with Christ. So that doctrine called union with Christ was something that had been, in, in my own experience, it was present in the background, but I had never seen it in clear outline in the way that seminary uh, illumined that to me. Mm. So it might sound strange to everyone to hear that you went to Reformed Theological Seminary and you are currently a visiting professor at Reformed Theological Seminary, but you are working on a doctorate at Catholic University. So explain that to us. Yes. So Catholic University of America is, is here in Washington, D.C., and the location was a prime factor in my choosing it to pursue further study. Uh, the Catholic tradition also has a very well-developed social thought, and I'm pursuing a degree in what's called moral theology and ethics. Uh, now, uh, very clearly, we have uh, doctrinal differences between the Reformed tradition, which I'm solidly in, and uh, the Catholic tradition, and there are going to be some uh, uh, markedly different presuppositions. There are also some important aspects of understanding the history of philosophy and the history of ethics that have direct bearing on today's conversations about these things, and uh, some tools that I think we can learn from. I also really wanted to learn about Catholic formation in this moral theology and social teaching of the church. Um, that I think there's a lot of attention to that, the, the upbringing of children, the formation in these um, uh, understanding of ethical and moral conclusions of the Catholic Church. Um, pedagogically, there's just things that I'm interested in about that. And I think that as we come into an era where we have very deep challenges, particularly in anthropology, what does it mean to be human? Um, some of our basic understanding of the uh, nature of, of human beings and uh, sexuality and marriage. Uh, there are some very important things that we share with Catholics who are, are faithful um, to, to, to the understanding that these things uh, transcend our debate today. And mm -hmm. um, these are not things that humans can remake. <laughs> uh, the, the God has designed uh, human beings, human nature in a particular way. Uh, so uh, the understanding how we can have conversations even across some theological differences that are very important to have as these challenges emerge. What's that been like on a personal basis? In class, I imagine there are lots of interesting conversations, both with your professors and with fellow students who come from perhaps a variety of backgrounds. Mm -hmm. I mean, has that been fun, challenging? What's that been like? It has been fun and challenging. Both. Okay, both. And it has also, it's, it, uh, it's been for me learning, learning some different languages, really? uh, being, like, what, what do you mean? literally being exposed to Latin. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but also, um, uh, you know, there's uh, we have dialects in our theological traditions, mm -hmm. and 
understanding the Catholic dialect is something I have been learning, am learning. And what that's good for is understanding that we speak in a dialect. And are we being understood by those who do not share this dialect? How can we do a better job of helping people understand or or perhaps recognizing when we're resorting to jargon rather than speaking the plain truth? Well, currently at RTS, you've taught a couple of different classes lately and are currently in the midst of teaching. You did a class called Terms of Cultural Engagement, where you talked about Christ and culture issues and provided an apologetic approach to apply that theological perspective in public life. Recently, you just did a class on justice and war, so questions about the morality of war. So tell us more about this Institute of Theology and Public Life and if I'm a person who has a lot of interest in these issues, my why might I want to make a trip to D.C. to maybe attend one of these classes? RTSDC is, as its name suggests, located in the nation's capital. And one of the important missions that it feels, this campus of RTS feels, is a need to minister in its location to the kinds of people that are walking through the doors of the seminary. And that means people who are in training to be in ministry in our nation's capital, to people who are practitioners of public policy, uh, people who will work in the State Department or the Education Department or uh, for a member of Capitol Hill, or maybe they will be a congressman or a federal judge. These are the kinds of people that attend churches in Washington, D.C. So pastors who are speaking to them, uh, teachers who are going to be addressing them, should be equipped to know their congregants in this capacity. So thinking more about the application of theology to public life for them. But not only that, a number of RTSDC students are public policy practitioners themselves. I'm an example of that. I I got my seminary degree at RTS. And uh, they're not, in my case, I I was not intending to leave my public policy job and go into full-time ministry. Uh, And that's true of other students as well. So how can this seminary campus serve them as they pursue their callings and, and seek to do that biblically? So the Institute of Theology and Public Life was formed with that in mind. And what we're trying to do is start from biblical and systematic theology and work out to application of that. That means considering theology and distilling those doctrines that are going to have particular relevance to the public square. Um, So the creation ordinances, common grace, understanding the scheme of redemptive history and where we are in that uh, makes a difference for our understanding of the application of scripture to this particular place and time. Uh, Ideas like those are ones that we try to get across in our core class. And then obviously that's going to be a different way of approaching the issue of public life than most people are going to use in their approach. So that means we have to figure out how do we have conversations across mm-hmm. those differences. And that's what this terms of cultural engagement is about, is thinking thinking through, uh, first of all, diagnosing our cultural context. And we've um, used authors like Alistair McIntyre, After Virtue, and um, James K.A. Smith's book, How Not to Be Secular, which is a reading of Charles Taylor's Secular Age, and helping us think through what are the characteristics of our age that make conversation difficult, And then what are some tools uh, that we can use for finding those points of contact and um, helping 
our neighbors see the ways that God has made human beings and society for its flourishing. Well, maybe you can unpack a, a couple of those, two or three of those issues for us, because for most of us, maybe we're not in D.C., but we do have people come into our Sunday school classes, our Bible study classes. Some are very tuned in politically and want to make everything about the Bible <laughs> apply to a political issue, and others who are completely politically uninterested. Maybe you could give us a little glimpse into some of the things you talk about on those issues you mentioned. Mm-hmm. As teachers of scripture, we're wanting to equip uh, people in our groups, our congregations, to be equipped for all their callings. And of course, one of those is the calling of citizenship in the communities around us. And that means that we need to understand very well and be very well grounded in scripture in those things that uh, the world around us is challenging today. And of course, some of the very big ones have to do with biblical anthropology. What does it mean to be human? Uh, from Genesis 1, <laughs> beginning right there, what does it mean to be made in the image of God, male and female, made for each other in marriage and in community? That is a wealth of statement. That is an enormous statement of truth. And it is having a lot of friction in the world around us today. One of the clearest examples of those challenges is the gender identity debate. And here's an example of why it is so important for Bible teachers to be thinking about grounding their groups in the Word from the very beginning of Scripture to the end. We're being taught about what it means to be made in the image of God. These are very, very challenging issues of our day, uh, and ones in which the formation in biblical truth, the anchoring in the authority of Scripture, is important for individuals who are going to be entering these conversations in their daily lives uh, to be translating and understanding how to articulate that in the public square. Well, that brings up a question to me, because I can imagine one of the I can picture I'm starting to talk about this and someone raises their hand and they say, yes, but I believe the Bible, but my neighbor doesn't. Mm -hmm. And I'm a citizen of a country that's, you know, it's very pluralistic. And so, yes, you're talking about, you mentioned the authority of the Bible and marriage in the Bible, but how can I expect everyone to live according Mm -hmm. to the Bible? So here's where I think it's helpful to stop and step back and really think about what politics is. And I think one useful phrasing of or understanding of how we can think about the whole political realm is to think about it as the way that we order our lives together. Politics is about fallen human beings with transcendent longings working out how we're going to do life together. And in that regard, uh, we have a great deal to glean from what Scripture is saying to speak into that. Um, We need to understand our place in redemptive history and the fact that we are uh, living in an age when there is an understanding of different views coming to the public square. We live in such a society. And it is appropriate that 
Christian citizens should speak about their knowledge of the way that God has made the world for its flourishing and seek to invite others to recognize that as well. Uh, That is a very not only legitimate thing to do, but good thing to do. And it's a way that we serve our neighbors when we speak the truth about how God has made the world for our good. Uh, That's a way that we love our neighbors. Talk to us a little bit more about the import of what it means in terms of where we are currently in redemptive history. How does that impact our thoughts about these things? Our understanding of redemptive history is going to influence how we are reading Scripture and its application to us today. This is the wonderful thing that a Bible teacher can remember about the great privilege they have to bring people to the truth of God's Word. We live in a time of tension, this already and not yet, uh, that Christ's work of redemption is accomplished, and yet we are waiting for the consummation of it. We live in that era um, that requires of us a realism to wrestle with the sinful realities of our day. We are fallen human beings, and yet we have these transcendent longings as we try to work out our lives here together. Uh, And we know there is a greater hope. So that means that we do not have to let our psychological state rise and fall with the election cycle. It means that we can be steady and consistently stewarding our callings to be citizens in this world, in this society that God has placed us in, and doing our best to love our neighbors by pointing to the way that we know God has made us as human beings with those transcendent longings, helping people to understand those, helping to understand God's design of what it means to be human and how we can um, best define what is good in a society, to, to, to say what is not acceptable in a society. That's what we're doing when public policy is happening, when laws are being made. We're saying as a society, this is good, this thing is good, or this thing is not good, and we cannot have it in our society. Let's participate in shaping that and do it on the basis of these principles that come from God's Word, the image of God, um, the understanding of common grace, the the good of this created order, um, what is the role of the family, what is the role of the church. All these are things, principles that we glean from Scripture that are extremely relevant to discerning our way in the midst of public policy today. Jennifer, you've used this term common grace a couple of times, and perhaps some of our listeners kind of know what it is, but maybe could use a, a richer understanding of that. Would you help us with that? So we're we're typically talking about grace is saving grace. That and and yet God's we can talk about God's goodness as it extends beyond that as well. That's where we refer to common grace. Um, most easily captured, I think, in that uh, uh, phrase that God makes the rain to fall on the godly and the ungodly. Uh, so, so it is these aspects of uh, the good order of the world that benefits all people. And we can think of government in that respect, government as an aspect and provision of God's common grace. So that's why I think it's important to this particular conversation. In the work that you do, when does common grace become an aspect of how you think about it or make decisions? Well, it's particularly important as we think about the 
worth of investing ourselves in the callings related to public policy uh, and in terms of even stewarding our role as citizens. Uh, why is that important to do? Why, you know, why are there things um, in addition to our concern for the eternal state of someone's soul, we want to be concerned as well um, with their good and their flourishing here on right earth now. because God seems to be concerned with that as well. You've mentioned a couple of times that we are citizens and that part of our calling is to be good citizens. If I think about how the word citizen is used in the Bible, most often it's talking about us being a citizen of heaven and that we already are. And so most of us find ourselves, I suppose, in that tension that we want to live uh, in the reality that this world is not our home and that we're looking forward to the new heaven and the new earth. And yet, as you're presenting it, we have this obligation, this role here in society. So what would you say to people about navigating that tension? We have a hope of heaven, and we live um, in expectation of that. Uh, but God has called us to live for him right here and now. And that means that we need to be uh, con concerned with the issues of our day, concerned with the challenges that our neighbors are facing. Uh, they're often very different than our own. I think of the issue of poverty. And um, we have a society that wrestles with how do we help our neighbors in need? And this is a place where the understanding of scriptural principles, I think, can have a profound difference in how we uh, seek to love our neighbors who uh, may be in want and, and may not have the opportunities in life that we do. By that, I mean that um, understanding, first of all, any public policy issue begins with a right diagnosis of the challenge, of the problem. And in this case, one of the things that's very critically important is that we uh, take stock of what's going on. I'm going to speak from an American perspective, but we could equally speak of uh, the rest of the developed world and Western Europe and so on. Uh, I'm making a contrast with the developing world. The developing world uh, faces poverty in the form that it's difficult to know where the next day's food is going to come from. It's a survival kind of uh, deprivation. Here in the United States, what we see in terms of poverty is often a kind of relational breakdown. So there's a high correlation between fatherlessness and child poverty, uh, the unraveling of communities, and that deeply affects the opportunities that a young person might have in life. So what I've just done there is obviously some, some fact-finding, and, and that's part of what it means to steward our role as citizens. But then once we ha kind of have an idea about that, if, if we're seeing this relational breakdown, uh, well, then we've got to bring to bear our understanding, our biblical understanding of what the nature of being human is. And of course, that drives us to our understanding of the of what it means to be made in the image of God. And to be made in the image of God uh, includes the fact that we are relational beings. We are made for relationship. And when that is absent from our lives, it has very significant consequences. When, when aspects of relationships break down, particularly in that most intimate circle of the family, um, we're going to we, we know that there are going to be extra challenges. Uh, those challenges are not assigning anyone a particular fate, but we do have to recognize them as difficulties and, and have sober judgment about that. And so 
um, being made in the image of God also means that we're designed for work. We're after the pattern of our creator. Uh, we are designed for work as a good. And, and when we think about that, the, the relational aspect of human beings, the need for um, the dignity of work to be a part of our lives, those are going to start shaping some of our responses to the need and drive us to the kinds of answers, whether in public policy or our own mercy ministries and private efforts to, to fight poverty. We want to look for things that speak to those aspects of the image of God in every person. Um, so the person in need, are we serving their relational needs? What are we doing to restore the institution of marriage uh, as an antidote to child poverty? Um, mm. The church has enormous relational capital. Uh, our faith is built on a restored relationship. And if we could grasp that from the pages of scripture and in, in our churches, we would have, uh, I think, no end to the creativity of how to serve those who are in the midst of deeply broken relationships and are suffering in material ways because of that, um, suffering a lack of opportunity because of the relational breakdown in their lives, uh, a lack of mobility. So you can see how that puts us on a path to want a, a, a wider range of solutions than merely defining the problem of poverty as a material issue. Uh, we've missed the mark of what it means to be human if we've flattened the question of poverty to a merely material issue. This is the way that a biblical worldview, uh, an anchoring in scripture, can begin to formulate even our assessment of the issue mm -hmm. and our direction in, in answering uh, those, those problems with solutions that work. A lot of times we'll be in leading maybe a small group or a class and something in the text will bring up an issue. And of course, we're really wanting to apply the text to a current issue to help people think about it. And But sometimes there'll be someone in our class who's heard this on talk radio yesterday and someone else who read this editorial and have very different views and it can become quickly heated and divisive. Uh, how do we bring the scripture to bear on those kind of conversations in a way that helps people think about things more deeply and perhaps not in such an argumentative way? I think it's very important for leaders to be able to listen to what's at the heart of a question or the heart of a debate, um, particularly when it is getting tense, when it is a, a heated exchange, and, and when there are, you know, um, uh, dimensions of our emotions engaged in these things. These can hit really close to home sometimes. And so listening for, to hear what the, what is at stake at the root of the conversation and being able to uh, get down to that principle. That's the real subject of conversation. It's very tempting for the political chatter around us today to make us focus on uh, individuals and personalities. We let it set the agenda. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And what I'm saying here is to really focus our attention, and particularly in the kinds of settings that we're talking about here today, focus on the 
scriptural principles that ought to be our guiding perspective for entering any of those conversations. Um, let's not be distracted uh, by so much noise that's happening out in the political sphere. Um, let's make sure that we're having the conversation that needs to take place about these deeper principles about what it means to be human, what it, what it means to um, organize life in a way that allows us to flourish in a, in a God-given design uh, for, for human relations, uh, and, and get back to that level, recognizing that God has designed all people in this way. And that means even if somebody has a radically different perspective on some aspect of that, um, we can be confident of the, what we know about the truth from God's word as to how humans are wired, what we long for. And therefore, we can have confidence and calm and peace even when we're met with hostility, even when we're met with a, um, an attention to some of those chaotic details of the food fight of the day. Mm -hmm. Let's get back to what we know and understand from Scripture about how God has made individuals and the world for uh, the good of human beings. I think it was Michael Horton I heard one time talk about how we come to church week by week having been discipled by the world for the other six days. What a challenge and opportunity for us as teachers when they come to wherever we're leading and opening up the scriptures. What an opportunity to ground them in something that's so much deeper, so much richer than the, all of the surface arguments going on. Anybody who feeds on the news cycle these days has to struggle with, with a lot of fear. We have, as Christians, a confidence that God is working in our world no matter what the conditions around us. That's different for, for, than for anybody else in the world, exactly. isn't it? That we should see these public policy issues and live in a world immersed in politics very differently because we have a different source of hope. Exactly. And we're called to faithfulness in the midst of that. So we're going, people are going to have a range of callings, and some are going to be called to have day jobs in public policy, maybe even run for office, and that is a good thing. They're going to have a deeper focus on these issues than someone who is, you know, teaching a Sunday school and spending their days with small children. Uh, but there's a citizenship call there as well. And over all of this, there is a call for us to have confidence that God continues to work in our world, and he will work throughout all seasons of political life. Uh, he is continuing to, to be on his throne throughout all of those. And so our confidence can be in that. That means, you know, it's, it's so interesting um, to read Augustine's City of God, uh, which he wrote over uh, a, a number of years, but he finished it as the vandal hordes were approaching the city of Hippo, where he would die uh, very shortly thereafter. And yet he had the perspective that we continued to live and work and hope. We sometimes talk about Augustinian realism, recognizing the fallenness of human beings, and yet 
um, the good of carrying on and uh, seeking what we are called to be faithful to in our lives around us. That's a good lesson for us today. Uh, Even when we feel like we may be living in very challenging times, that it's important to um, recognize the way that God has called us to be faithful even now, even here. Let me ask you this. Is it possible to work in a public policy setting in today as a believer with a sense of not being sullied by the system that you're plunging into? Can Christians really make a difference? Christians continue to be called to the public square. And yes, faithful Christians will always make a difference. Uh, It is important that we recognize uh, the possibilities and the limits of those roles. It's the testimony of an individual Christian in that role, as well as the policies that they seek to advance. And Sometimes these are very long journeys to achieve something that is more faithfully true uh, to the way that God has made the world. We can certainly look back on the fight against the slave trade and William Wilberforce's work on that, the the years and years of effort that that took. Um, In the same way, when we have challenges in our day about human trafficking or uh, abortion, these kinds of things that uh, we're we need to be faithful in our season of having opportunity to shape those conversations and look for the, 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 the ways that we can be a part of that, whether we have a day job in public policy or, or whether we don't. There are ways that we can work for good in the world around us with regard to those issues. As we close, Jennifer, why don't you just speak directly? I imagine you can picture in your mind, because you sit under a lot of great teaching in different settings, would you just give us as Bible teachers a word of challenge and encouragement as we open up the Bible week by week and we're, our, our groups are filled with people who've been immersed in political discourse all week through all different kinds of media, give us a word of challenge and encouragement as we open up the scriptures week by week to teach to them. When a Bible teacher looks out at a class and thinks about these individuals in their capacities as citizens uh, in this society, a teacher has the opportunity to give them the confidence of God's word with respect to the nature and the purpose of human beings and the way that God has organized us in families and given us the church and uh, created us as relational beings in society, all of these things, as we bring the truth of God's word to bear on these topics, this is equipping citizens to shape our public discourse, shape those conversations in ways that will be profoundly deeper than uh, much of what we hear in uh, the political food fight around us at times and bring us back to those truths that need to be a part of answering these greatest challenges of our day um, that go to the the most uh, fundamental realities of what it means to be human and how we can serve our neighbors in love. Thank you so much, Jennifer. Thank you for being a woman who loves the scriptures, loves Christ, and is committed to being a good citizen in this world we live in and is 
preparing yourself to continue to do that in better and better ways. Thanks for that example and that leadership you provide to us. Thank you, Nancy. I'm grateful for this platform that allows these conversations. You've been listening to Help Me Teach the Bible with Nancy Guthrie, a production of the Gospel Coalition sponsored by Crossway. Crossway is a not-for-profit publisher of the ESV Bible, Christian Books and Tracts, including a number of books that may be of interest if public policy is of interest to you. One I might suggest is Bioethics and the Christian by David Van Drunnen, A Guide to Making Difficult Decisions, or on the issue of Just War, a book called War, Peace, and Christianity, Questions and Answers from a Just War Perspective by J. Daryl Charles and Timothy Demme, and then a classic book, A Christian Manifesto by Francis Schaeffer. You can learn more about Crossway's gospel-centered resources at crossway.org. 